It is great to be with you. It's uh, our joy to be able to uh, share with you today. There are many things about uh, Hope Chapel that are special to me. Uh, one is uh, Neil and the friendship that uh, we have developed as uh, we both have a heart for Rwanda and how God has used uh, that relationship. And I want to just share just a little bit more. But uh, um, we're thankful for uh, uh, one of your uh, uh, own families here. I'm told that uh, we'll be with the Jason Fournier family uh, later today. Uh, Jason uh, grew up in the Manchester Christian Church where I preached for uh, 30 years. And I, well, when I got there, when we got there in 1980, he was just a little boy. And uh, so there he is. Great. great. <laughs> He's a little bigger than he used to be. Uh, it is uh, our pleasure to be with uh, Jason and his family. Um, I want you to know that uh, God has used uh, Neil and you uh, as part of my journey, our journey, uh, as uh, we refocused uh, back in 19, uh, back in 2010. Uh, you see, we came from, uh, uh, if you couldn't tell, we came from the South. Uh, we came from uh, South Central Virginia back in 1980. Uh, we believed that God had called us here to New England to share his good news. And uh, uh, God blessed us beyond our wildest imagination. Uh, but back in uh, 2009, I began to sense that God was calling me to step down. And so I announced in January of 2010 that in June I would be stepping down. And uh, so at the end of June, uh, we stepped down and we were looking to God for the, the next part of the journey with him. And... Didn't know where that might be. I'd been to Rwanda once. Uh, didn't know a lot about the church leaders, but uh, thought, okay, maybe God wants me to, to focus on Rwanda. And in that uh, uh, time, uh, downtime, taking a break, uh, got a telephone call. And that was in November of 2010. And uh, the person on the other end of the phone is saying, uh, there are three preachers from Massachusetts going to Rwanda. Uh, to teach uh, 55 church leaders. Now, I'd been in 2009, and uh, we'd been a part of a, a group, and I'd met uh, Theophil Rugabera, and uh, he took us all over the country. And the person on the other end of the phone said, uh, there are 55 church leaders, and we're going to take them through uh, the entire New Testament. Uh, Frank, if you want to go, your trip is paid for. And I said, God, are you talking to me? <laughs> okay. Uh, I had the joy of spending two weeks uh, with Neil uh, on that trip, and uh, we took uh, 55 church leaders through every book of the New Testament, gave them background. And I don't know if you understand how significant that is. You see, 85%, I am told 85% of church leaders around the world have little to no formal Bible training. And they have no Bible resources. Now we think all of the world is sort of like us. And we can't imagine churches being led by leaders who don't know the Bible. But that's the case with most of the world. You see, the United States is less than 4.5% of the population of the world. Most of the world is not like us. And about 85% of church leaders around the world have little to no Bible training. And the church leaders in Rwanda will tell us, we don't know our Bible. 
please come and teach us. And so we had the joy of taking them through the entire New Testament. And it was a whole new world for these church leaders. And part of it for me was to get to know the church leaders in Rwanda and what their situation is. Their desire to serve the church, but their desire to know God's word so they can teach God's word to their people. And so uh, in June of uh, 2010, my wife went and uh, it just confirmed uh, that we believe that God is calling us in this stage of our life and ministry uh, to equip church leaders in Rwanda. When we were there in February of 2010, 55 church leaders, they were sleeping on concrete, they were sleeping on the dirt outside on mats, and after a month of going through this training and sleeping on concrete and the dirt, their main question was, when can we go deeper? Their desire was to go deeper in God's Word. So went back in June and decided, okay, uh, we'll take three chapters. Three chapters of the Bible. Uh, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount. Now they sort of knew Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They could read their Bible. They had Bibles. But they didn't know Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And they didn't know it was the Sermon on the Mount. And they didn't know that this, these three chapters were so significant in the life and ministry of Jesus. So we took a week, 15 church leaders, and we took a week, and we went through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And you're probably aware, begins with the Beatitudes. And the first one of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Later, these church leaders shared that we, we never have understood. Blessed are the poor. What's that about? Uh, well, the Bible says blessed are the poor, and we are poor, so I guess we're blessed. And so we're blessed. We don't know why. We don't, we, we don't experience it, but we are blessed. Because the Bible says we're blessed. They, they did not understand. But Jesus is the one who says in Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read passages of Scripture and I sort of scratch my head. And sometimes I think there are passages, I think I understand it, but then I sort of back up and say, do I really understand what Jesus is saying? I want us to think through this morning. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First of all, let's think about the poor. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have blessed are the poor in spirit. There's another passage in Luke that uh, has some similar passages uh, to what we find at the beginning of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And uh, in Luke six twenty, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, there's something going on in what Jesus is presenting here. And Jesus comes and he sort of gives us an upside-down kingdom. We think blessed are the rich. We think if we could just make a little more money, we would be so blessed. 
But Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the poor. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, blessed are the meek. And in the world we live in, we think, no, the, the poor are not the ones who are blessed. The rich are the ones who are blessed. The ones who mourn, they're not the ones who are blessed. And Jesus comes and he turns everything upside down. Uh, let me remind you. Jesus says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Jesus says, the greatest in the kingdom will be servant of all. See, we think the one who is the greatest has the top position and everybody serves them. But Jesus comes along and he serves and he says the greatest in the kingdom will be the servant of all. He turns it upside down. Jesus says those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. The poor. What about the rich? Uh, let's think about the poor. And in contrast to the poor, let's think about the rich. You know, somewhat to our amazement, I don't find anywhere in the scripture that says, blessed are the rich. I don't ever find Jesus saying, blessed are the rich. Now we think, blessed are the rich. The Bible doesn't say that. Jesus didn't say that. There are some warnings and some cautions. Now, it doesn't say that being rich is a sin. But there are definitely some warnings and cautions in Scripture about riches. Uh, Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But who are the rich? You see, there are some warnings and cautions for the rich, but who are the rich? Uh, have you stopped and thought about how rich we actually are? Now, I suppose uh, most of you are familiar with a great preacher today, Andy Stanley. Uh, his father, Charles Stanley, preached for years and uh, still preaching. But Andy, I believe Andy is one of the uh, greatest uh, communicators in the church today. Just an amazing communicator. And he, he has a series, a message series called How to Be Rich. It's not how to get rich. It's how to be rich. Because as Americans, most of us, we need to know and learn how do we do this? We are rich. How, how do you do that? How to be rich? Uh, he says, uh, in this series, he says, uh, there are places in the world where people have no cars. And we ex certainly experienced that in Rwanda. There are a few cars. Most people walk. There are a few bicycles. But most people walk. And there are places all over the world where people have no cars. In Rwanda, there are people who walk three hours on a Sunday morning to worship. That's one way. Theophil has shared with me there are some places in Rwanda where people will actually walk up to five hours. 
And part of his heart is to start new churches for those people. Not start more new churches where they already have churches in Rwanda, but start churches where people are walking hours and hours just to go to a worship service. Well, Andy Stanley says there are places in the world where people have no cars. And I don't know these people, but there are actually people in the world, he says, who have houses for the cars. Not only do they have cars, they have houses for their cars. There's this place where they drive up, they push a button, and the door goes up and they drive in. There's a house for their car when many people in the world don't even have a car. And there are people in the world so rich they have houses for their cars. He says, there are people in this world who live in cardboard shacks. Now, I I suspect that uh, Neil shared with you uh, our experience this last February. Uh, We went to eastern Rwanda one day and met with one of the church leaders, met his family, his wife, and we got to see his house. And Martin lived in this just mud brick house, wasn't really complete, no rooms inside, no furniture. There was a rope that was strung across inside to put their clothes over. And they were living in these conditions. And Neil says that many of you have reached out to help uh, uh, Pastor Martin to have a house for his wife and his children. Well, Andy Stanley says there are places in the world where people live in cardboard shacks and a one-room house like Martin. Now, We don't know these people. But Andy says there are people in this world who actually have houses with a room that no one ever uses. It's called a guest room. And it's just in case somebody comes and they need a place to stay, that they have rooms in their houses for somebody that comes along. Here's the point. We need to understand As we think about the poor and we think about the rich, we need to understand we are rich. I understand the economy is bad. We are rich. Even in a bad economy, you and I, we are rich compared to most of the world. And the Bible has some warnings and some cautions for rich people. Uh, Let me read another passage for you, and we're not going to put this up, but if you would just sort of uh, write this down and go home and reflect on Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Revelation 3, 17 through 18. it's It's a message to the church at Laodicea. And there, as we pick up in verse 17, it says, For you say, I am rich. And I can't help but think, as the angel writes to the church at Laodicea, I wonder what God would have to say to us today. And as I think about America, not necessarily us in this room, but maybe, but certainly as I think about America, what would God have to say to us Today, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, 
poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, the Bible has a lot to say about those who are rich. But it has to do with warnings and cautions. Let me give you one more. In 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, basically uh, the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy to teach those who are rich how to be rich. In 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, Paul says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up Uh, their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. It's not a sin to be rich. But those who are rich need to be careful. And they need not to be proud in their riches. I don't know about you. I know some people who are proud in their riches. And I know some rich people who are not putting their trust in God. But they're putting their trust in money. And God says, you better be careful. But God says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a book called When Helping Hurts. How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. It's a great book as we reach out uh, right here in America. It's a great book to understand as we reach out around the world. In that book, we're told that economic historians, they've looked at uh, the economics of time, and they say that most of human history, there's been little economic growth. In most of human history, little economic growth. And relatively low economic inequality. So we think about the inequality of the rich and the poor in the world today. It hasn't been that way for most of human history. It didn't change until about 1820. 1820, the Industrial Revolution, changed a lot of things. Up until then, we're told that the average income per person in the richest countries, the average, the average income per person in the richest countries was only about four times higher than the average income per person in the poorest countries. That's one to four. That's a quarter to a dollar. Did you know that one billion people today live on less than a dollar a day in the world we live in? Forty percent of the world lives on less than two dollars a day. We're told that 90% of Rwandans live on less than two dollars a day. Now let's do a little comparison. Two dollars a day, multiply that times 50. See, the quarter to the dollar, four times. Let's do 50 times. Uh, $2 a day, $100, 
$100 a day would amount to uh, a yearly income of $36,500. Now, I'm not saying that every American makes that, but there's a lot of Americans have no problem with that. So if God is saying uh, to the rich, when the, the comparison is one to four, what is he saying to us when it's like $2 to $100 or more? God is saying, be careful, but blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what about the poor in spirit? We've talked about the poor, we've talked about the rich. The poor in spirit. You know, sometimes when we try to get a handle on what is Jesus saying, what is the Bible teaching, there's often a story or a message in the Bible that is a great illustration of what's going on. And I believe we have that today. Uh, there is a story in Luke chapter 7. Uh, Luke chapter 7 about Jesus and a sinful woman who anointed him. Uh, we're not going to put up all the verses on the screen, but I'm going to begin with verse 36. Uh, Luke chapter 7, beginning with uh, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees, so here's a religious guy, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, I want us to get this picture. I want us to get the scene. There are three people, and there's a number of customs that we need to understand. So, there's uh, one guy here. He's the Pharisee. He's the religious guy. He is proud in his religion. Now, later on we find out that his name is Simon. Now, we're not sure, but I think we might get a hint later on in the story. Why did he invite Jesus into his home for this meal? But anyway, Simon the Pharisee, he invites Jesus into his home for this meal. And so here's Jesus. Jesus is going around uh, teaching and preaching and performing miracles. And uh, the religious leaders are bothered by what he's doing. But Simon the Pharisee invites him to his home for some reason. And there's another person in this story, and that's a sinful woman. I believe this is not the first encounter with this sinful woman. That there has been some time in the life and ministry of Jesus that she has come face to face with Jesus. And she has come to know of His love and His grace and His forgiveness. And she comes into this room and she is broken. I believe she didn't come to uh, cry and wet his feet with her tears. That she came to this party uninvited, but she wanted to be with Jesus. She heard he was going to be there. She comes, and I believe that because of her own sinfulness, and because of the presence of Jesus and his love and his mercy, she is broken inside. And to her very core, she is just overcome with emotion. And I believe she was planning to just come and anoint his feet. But when she got there, 
she wet his feet with her tears. So there's Simon the Pharisee, there's Jesus, and there is this woman. There are a number of customs in this story. One, uh, the custom is uh, when someone comes to your home because of the dusty roads and they wore sandals, uh, your feet would be dirty. And uh, the custom was when someone came into your home, you had a guest come in your home, you would wash their feet or uh, in this instance, uh, Simon would, should have a servant who's going to wash the feet of his guest. And Jesus comes in and no one washed his feet. Uh, one of the customs is uh, a kiss. So in Rwanda, there is this, uh, uh, you do three times like this. You embrace and you do this and this and this. That's sort of the, uh, the greeting. Uh, in the Holy Land at that time, the custom was you would greet one another with a kiss. And so Jesus comes into Simon's home and there is no kiss. And uh, there was a custom of anointing the head with a little oil. Jesus comes in, they didn't, uh, Simon did not anoint him with oil. Uh, there's one more part of the scene that I want you to get. See, we think of, uh, you, you, you pull up a chair to the table when you're ready to eat. Uh, they didn't do that. Uh, they would recline at table. Notice in the passage it says uh, they reclined at the table. Now, they had little low tables, uh, and it was probably about as high as this second step here, and... They had couches. If you think about Anthony and Cleopatra and people waving the palm branches and they're reaching over and getting grapes, uh, the tables were low. And they would recline at tables so the head was up toward the table and the feet was at the other end. So you get the picture. Here is Jesus reclined at table. And here is this woman who comes in. And she's going to anoint Jesus. And she's at His feet. And she is so overcome with her own sinfulness. And she is broken inside at who this man is. Jesus, who will forgive her. She is very much aware of her own sinfulness. And here is a man who will forgive her of her sins. And she is broken and she begins to weep and her tears wet his feet. And then she takes her hair and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And she takes, she kisses his feet and she takes the jar of perfume and she anoints his feet with the perfume. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet. Now, I think that's a clue. The text doesn't tell us specifically, but I believe that's why Simon invited him. Okay, he knows some things about this man, Jesus. Is he really a prophet from God? I'll tell you what. I'll invite him into my home to a meal, and uh, we'll just have some time together, and then I think I can discern. Is he truly a prophet of God or not? And so, uh, Simon says, uh, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, he's partly right and partly wrong. You see... Simon believes that if, he, if Jesus is a prophet of God, he will know what kind of woman she is. 
But what he doesn't understand is that Jesus will allow this sinful woman to touch him. Simon is under the impression if, if, if he knew what kind of woman this is, he would not even begin to let her touch him. Touch his, she would, he wouldn't let her touch his feet. And so Simon is correct. If he's a prophet of God, he would know. But he's wrong in that he wouldn't allow this woman to touch him. So Jesus has a response to it for him. Now Simon is not saying this out loud. But Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. And so Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. Now we're told that's about a, a, a denarii is about a day's wage. So that's about one year, four months. One year and four months of work. And the other owed 50. That's about a little over seven weeks. So we got one year, four months as compared to seven weeks of pay. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Can you, can you see the picture? Here's Jesus reclining at table. He tells Simon this story. Simon responds correctly. And then Jesus turns to the woman. Can you imagine what this woman experiences when Jesus explains to Simon? But he's looking right into her eyes. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Now here's the passage I want you to get. Beginning with verse 47. I tell you, her sins, and they are many. Simon, she is a sinful woman. Her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now understand, here is Jesus, here's a sinful woman, and here is Simon the Pharisee. Do you realize that Jesus' love and His forgiveness, His mercy, His grace 
is available to both of them? Simon can't get there. Why? Because of his own religious pride. Because of who he thinks he is. And here's a woman who is broken in her sinfulness and she is forgiven because blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we need to ask ourselves, where are we in this story? You see, the ones who perhaps are the, uh, in the greatest danger of being like Simon the Pharisee, and I hate to say it, but it's church people. See, sometimes we get so religious and so puffed up in who we think we are that we forget that actually we are this sinful woman. Many of us, we came to Jesus and we were broken in our sin and just amazed that Jesus would forgive us of our sin. But somewhere over time we got religious and we forgot about our sinfulness. Every one of us, we are still sinners before God in desperate need of a Savior who will forgive us of our sins. But we can't get there unless we're poor in spirit and broken in our own sinfulness. And we still marvel and are amazed that Jesus will forgive me. Jesus will forgive you of your sin. So I need to leave you and ask you, where are you? Are you more like the sinful woman? Are you more like Simon the Pharisee? Don't forget, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And once again, as we recount this story in the life and ministry of Jesus, we, we just stand amazed. We're amazed at Jesus' wisdom. We're amazed at His love. We're amazed at His grace. And Father, we thank You. We thank You that this love and grace is available even today for sinful people like us. May we praise You not only today, but throughout all of eternity for your amazing grace. It is in Jesus' precious and holy and powerful name that we pray. Amen.